As parents, we're always like trying to keep things clean, right? It's our job. But ultimately, letting your child become messy, letting them explore is going to allow them to become adventurous eaters. Hi, and welcome to Help Them Bloom, a podcast for conscious parents. All right, parents, raising children is no small job. And how you choose to raise your child during their first years impacts so much of their self-worth and how they'll navigate life. As a child and parenting expert, I'm here on a mission to help you parent intentionally through the messiest of your moments and in a way that feels good to you. Let's dive in. Welcome back, guys, to a new episode of Help Them Bloom. I have a guest today whom I've actually known my whole life. Today, I have with me Melanie Gorin. She is a certified and licensed speech language pathologist for almost 15 years. She works now in private practice, addressing speech language deficits and feeding difficulties. And she also works at a hospital, Joe DiMaggio Children's Hospital in the NICU, pediatric ICU, and she completes outpatient swallow studies. Mel, thanks for being here with me today. What an honor. Thank you. Thank you so much. So excited. So today we're going to talk uh, a little more about picky eating, other things about eating, sensory stuff, you know, some tips and tricks that Mel will leave us with. So I'm really excited to just jump right in. Mel, can you define for us what picky eating, what are we talking about with picky eating? Because it's like such a thrown around buzzword now, right? My child's a picky eater. My child's a picky eater. What are we looking at? What is picky eating? So it's very interesting. Our words really, really matter. Even when you describe your child as picky, what are you really trying to say? Maybe they're just not adventurous. So the first thing I try to do when I work with parents and children is trying to change the language surrounding how we speak about them, to them, and about food. So the literature defines a picky eater as, uh, or like, somebody that's very picky is less than that. They eat less than 30 foods. Okay. okay. But 30 foods, but 30 foods is, you know, it's, it could be like, you know, if they eat two different types of chicken nuggets, I guess you could count that. Right. Mm-hmm. But really, really, I mean, a lot of the patients that come to me, they really have five foods in their repertoire or three foods in their repertoire. So or, y- there's not really, it's usually not like, you're not usually at the cusp of 30. It's usually like they eat a lot of stuff or a lot of different stuff, or there's like five things. Yeah. So just to keep that involved. And then again, so 25 to 50% of normally developing children are picky eaters. And then three to 5% of those kids are qualified as a pediatric feeding disorder. So it's defined as a significant impairment of oral intake lasting more than two weeks that is not age appropriate and results in substantial medical, nutritional, and emotional consequences. Yeah. So you've got to see it like actually impacting their their growth. Correct. Mm-hmm. Let's unpack that, right? So if it just if it just bothers you at dinner because they don't eat your rice but they eat the other, you know, your your mom's rice, like I'm not I'm not too worried about that. But when the pediatrician starts to worry, when you're starting to make changes to your fam- your entire family unit, when you're starting to bring foods for them, that's when you know, okay, we need we need to we, we need to get into this. We need to figure out what's really going on. There's a reason and we need to figure out what that reason is. And typically everybody jumps to behavior. 
mm-hmm. they're doing it on purpose or they're just being brats. They don't right. like it. And I'd like to really change that viewpoint for parents. Yes, there can be behaviors involved, but typically it doesn't come just, it doesn't start as a behavior. There's yeah. typically a, a motor response, a sensory response, right? There's like this stimuli and also something physical, like children, for example, so in a medical, physical medical. So if you have a child that's been, you know, every time they eat a certain food or every time something is happening and they're vomiting, well, guess what? That's not a good feeling. I know yeah. that I've had situations where like you drank a certain thing or ate a certain thing. And then it made, you know, after that, even if that didn't make you throw up, you will be apprehensive to eat that thing again. Yeah. It's like associations. Mm -hmm. Correct. And the same goes for children. So how can we give us a clue into like, how do we know there's maybe possibly a motor issue (laughs) going on? (laughs) So that's so funny. I was literally segueing into that. So I have a lot of children that I get that usually are around 12 to 18 months and they're either still doing purees or they do purees plus maybe like some snack foods or some goldfish, which that's like the the feeding therapist nightmare, goldfish. Um, Ooh, why? Tell me that. Why? Loves <laughs> she loves goldfish. She always of has. Course. Okay. Of course she does. It's the same shape. It's the same texture. It's It's the same look. It's the same taste. It's the same everything. Let me ask you something. You've been to this, the restaurant Houston's, right? You've gone to Houston's. Mm-hmm. Why is Houston's so good? Because if there's spinach you dip. Go, <laughs> <laughs> okay, fine. <laughs> Tell me their spinach dip doesn't taste exactly the same every time you go. Pretty consistent. Yeah. It's, it's very consistent. Anytime you go to a restaurant that maybe that's not like the best food, but when it's very consistent, it's like a go-to place. You feel comfortable. Yeah. And so children safe. find these, it's safe. It's a safe food, right? You know, um, when you eat, for example, carrots or let's say cucumbers, sometimes they're a little soggier. Sometimes they're a little mm-hmm. crunchier. Sometimes they're a little sweeter. Sometimes they're a little wetter. So there's always like a surprise yeah. And so if those things affect you, then it's really hard to kind of move forward from that. So 12 to 18 months is usually when I get these kids that are still on purees and hard to really move from solids. Like then we're moving them into solids and it's been really hard. They're, you know, mom and dad will be like, oh, they're spitting out all their food. Um, oh, they don't like it. We'll talk about the I don't like it st- statement. And the truth is, is these children maybe are having some motor difficulty. They're having, you know, your tongue is supposed to move the food from side to side. And if you're not having that lingual lateralization, that's why the food's just going to go out forward. It's Mm -hmm. not going to go backwards. It's not going to go from side to side and get to that point where swallowing is reflexive. And so it's um, once we can work on those oral motor skills, I mean, you move forward so quickly. You move past, you know, from purees to little bite-sized pieces to like, you know, eating hamburgers, you know, taking chunks out of it. So that's where motor difficulties happen. And you can still see it in like three and four-year-olds too. That's what I was going to ask you. So is it also something that comes up later that like maybe we missed? Absolutely. A lot of times when I do a swallowing evaluation, when I'm doing the evaluation, I'm really coming to watch them eat 
And so my evaluation is me coming to watch them eat and then putting a plan of care together. Obviously, I'm looking at a lot of different things. It seems simple, but I'm looking at how they're sitting. How would do they have good postural support? Um, what does their their environment look like? Who's feeding them? How are they being fed? What's going on in the the, the environment while they're eating? Are they watching TV? Is somebody encouraging them? Are they playing games? Like, what are we doing during mealtime? And then my sessions are really, I come to your house, make a mess, eat all your food and leave. Um, <laughs> well, there's so much that goes into it with what you're saying. Like there really is, there are so many components that I think we don't even think about, right? Even just like when you said posture, like we don't even think about that, right? Or how they're being fed. So you're looking at motor stuff. You're looking at, let's talk about sensory for a minute. Sensory, you know, I've been, I've been into sensory. I've been into sensory a lot, meaning like i I really get, you know, I get parents of lots of little ones and even the ones that are a little bit older. And I always now ask myself this question when I hear about their behaviors, could there be an underlying like sensory sensitivity or are they being overstimulated or is there something that they're trying to avoid? Is something overwhelming to them, right? And so I do feel like sensory I wish I wish we were taught this as parents, like as soon as our kids were born, like look at an entire sensory system and look at how your child responds to different things. How can we look at sensory in, in feeding and in food? Like how do we know, okay, it's not just behavior, it's not motor. Could it be, could it be sensory? How do we know that? So that's a really good question. I'm not sure I'm gonna be able to fully give you that big full answer on this on this podcast. I do work very closely with occupational therapists mm-hmm. to to focus and and help me regulate the child so that the child is actually able to regulate their own body and get ready to eat. Mm-hmm. Um, things that tell me that it could be sensory. Many times, gagging is mm-hmm. a is a sign that there is a sensory component. Even face making. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes they make faces, especially like when it's new foods, and you'll see them do this like disgusting face. And the truth is it really doesn't taste badly or they may not like it or not like it. A six month old doesn't know what they like or don't like, but what happens is it's unfamiliar. Right. So when it's unfamiliar, you're having these, these overt responses. I mean, listen, there are, there are times when I eat something and I'm like, okay, wasn't my favorite. Definitely Mm -hmm. not going to repeat that again, but I don't need to, you know, make a whole production about it, you know, (laughs) in front of the whole table, spitting food out, you know, wiping my tongue, those kinds of things. Typically, if I believe there's a sensory component, I'll usually refer out for an occupational therapist. We'll do a sensory profile and see where they land on that sensory profile. And one of the programs that I'm actually, I'm just about to finish the certification. It's a three-part one-year certification you are taking familiar foods, chaining them, relating them to different um, the different textures, you're relating them to the different colors and putting this whole chain of events of together and creating a session with this. And it's usually what I do is play with purpose during sessions. So that way we're tackling not only the oral motor, but also the sensory all at the same time because I use different, um, for example, carrots, that would be considered something that would be targeting oral motor because it's long, it's hard, it's crunchy. They have to move things from side to side. Mm-hmm. Then I'll use in that same uh, boat, I would maybe use orange veggie sticks. So mm-hmm. it's orange, it's a stick and it's all kind of related. It's all interrelated. And that way we can target different 
oral motor and sensory aspects in the mm-hmm. session. So there's like some some familiarity, but you're changing. There's there's still things that are the same, but there's things that you're introducing differently too within the same kind of either color or texture or things like that, right? Yes. And I think this is a really good way to talk about, and you and I kind of talked about it too, is about messy eating, right? So that sensory component and connecting messy eating. As parents, we're always like trying to keep things clean, right? It's our job. Not like, yes, we're trying to get them fed, but we're also trying to like not have to change them a million times and not having to clean the floor and the the high chairs and all of these things. But ultimately, letting your child become messy, letting them explore is going to allow them to become adventurous eaters. If we are constantly rubbing, for example, when we start purees and you're using a spoon, you know, our, our first instinct is like, every time they're going to tongue thrust, we're going to take the spoon and scoop it. Right. And we don't want to, we don't want to do that. It's a very noxious stimuli and it's not something that we're taught. It's something, it's almost like a learned behavior as parents. And we want to make sure that they stay messy, even if it's dripping onto their clothes. If you really care, get them naked, you know, leave them without their onesie, just let them eat. For older kids, usually what I say is if they're getting messy and they're three, four, five years old, then maybe there's like a motor component or a sensory component that's there. So either they're hyposensitive, they don't feel it. Or there's a motor issue where they just are not able to coordinate all the things. And if that's the case, then again, this is when you know you need more help. This is when you know you need to dive deeper into why is this really happening? Is this typical? So when we're really talking about um, sensory, there could be sensory components am i right to to assume that like if you see patterns in certain like food types let's say like if they're like mushy foods or if there's like a texture pattern for different kids that you see every time they kind of have this kind of texture there's a reaction it could be something sensory is that something that parents should look for i think i think it's fair to say that i think that if your child is consistently having difficulty with one specific area or one specific Uh, food group, I definitely think it's something to look into. Do you need a full feeding evaluation? Maybe not. Maybe you just Mm -hmm. need a quick consult. Maybe you just need to take some notes. Maybe you need to keep like a journal and be like, is this really happening? Like, is it really every time? Um, And just trying to gather more information to be able to say, hmm, do I need help? And on that note, I will say, Many times when you speak to the pediatrician, their answer is, well, let's wait and see, and let's wait and see, and let's wait and see. And, and honestly, I'm, I'm a mom of three boys. I have, all of them have had different types of therapy and for some I've waited and some I haven't. And I think it's always best for early intervention. If you can nip it in the bud, right? If you are able to start therapy at an early, like at six or seven months, if you're already starting to see difficulty, it could be a simple switch. It could be that the high chair isn't providing enough postural support. Mm-hmm. And that's why it could be that they're not doing really good supported sitting. And so maybe you need a few sessions of PT, of physical yeah. therapy yeah. that you can get them together. And then you can move it along and say, okay, we tried that. That didn't work. Now let's try like something else. But we miss that window. And when you miss that window, you are um, backpedaling. You are trying to catch up 
Yeah. And instead of just trying to get it right in that moment. Yeah, that makes sense. And also like, I know just so much happens. Can we talk about like toddlerhood for a minute? Because so much happens in the shift from infancy babies to toddlers, uh, where we now have these like emerging little autonomous beings too, that add this whole other component to it, right? Which is like, they want the power and they want, they want to choose and they want, they want to be in control. So do you have any like tips around toddlerhood? So it's funny that you say that, right? Our job is to make them as independent as possible. And then we're like kicking ourselves. Like, why are we allowing them to be this, you know, powerful? Why are we Mm -hmm. giving them that power? And I think that the most important statement I will give you today, and I hope all parents will hear, is that the parent provides, the child decides. Mm -hmm. And I think that that statement really gives you an idea. My kids love spaghetti and meatballs. And guess what? My little one is getting a little more, you know, I don't want to even say picky because he's not a picky eater, but he's just, he's being a little bit more difficult, right? Mm -hmm. He's just like, I want plain pasta. I don't want pasta with meatballs. And what ends up happening is I have help at at home. And she said, she's like, I'm just not going to send the meatballs. And I'm like, Mm -hmm. absolutely not. We are not doing that. We are going to send them And because we decide what we serve, we decide what we eat. It is a familiar food. It is not an unfamiliar food. I'm not sending liver and onions. I'm sending pasta with meatballs. Mm -hmm. And if he chooses not to eat it, then that's his choice. Yeah. And that's okay. And I think that as we start to um, give in to these, you know, we give in to the pressure from our, from our strong independent children, we need to continue to serve all of the foods. We need to continue to put everything out there for them yeah. and give them the choice. That that makes so much sense to me and I and I agree with that in even just the behavioral compo- you know the behavioral aspect of every other every other aspect of a toddler's life it should really be the same right the parent sort of sets the these are the cho- the choices and you can choose within them kind of right. So it makes sense. I have a question though that you just said about you know it was a familiar food for him so it wasn't like you were you were sending something like beyond extravagant for him or whatever. How, tell us your thoughts behind like, how much do we veer? How much do we stick with safe foods versus introducing new foods? Like, is there like some formula you like to use? So I think it's fair to say that if every meal you're challenging them, Mm -hmm. you will, you will have a combative eater. So I don't like to challenge them at every single meal. I I can't control lunch. Um, I know a lot of children, either you send lunch or they eat lunch at school. It's not a meal you can control. Yeah. My daughter eats rice every day at school and that's it because she gets to choose her own lunch. Right. So that's it. That's a loss one for me. (laughs) You're not going to, you're not going to win that fight. I promise Uh you. Uh Um, Breakfast is usually like it's it's an easier meal for most parents and children, but it's also a rushed one. You know, mm-hmm. we're never like sitting and having this extravagant like breakfast meal. So dinner is usually a time that I provide, let's call them some challenges. And usually what I'll do is I provide two familiar foods and one unfamiliar food. Okay. Or or I'll do three familiar foods and one unfamiliar food. Um, I'll give you an example. I, as a kid, loved spaghetti with meatballs and green beans. I used to cut up the green beans and I would throw it in and I would eat it all mishmashed. Okay. I was not a picky eater. I'm a big foodie. And 
for my kids, like I wish I would have kept offering green beans, but I got in, I got complacent. I just stopped because I was like, I don't want to waste the food. I don't want to waste my time. I don't want to fight. And I completely changed my perspective. And so now I tell myself, nobody's going to cry over one green bean. So I literally put one green bean on everyone's plate. (laughs) Um, I say, I say nothing. I'm not like, oh, let's try this or let's eat this or what do you have or whatever. Typically the first reaction I get is I don't want to eat that. Mm-hmm. And my answer is I don't want to eat that yet. And and I tell him, I'm like, oh, you don't have to eat that now or you don't have to eat that yet. So I don't want to close the door. I'm not like you never mm-hmm. have to eat that. Mm-hmm. Right. And then eventually what will end up happening is they kind of get really curious. And so then they start to ask questions. What does it taste like? Mm. And I'm like, well, it's hard to describe green beans. Why don't you smell it? Maybe mm-hmm. that'll give you an idea of what it tastes like. So usually it has like butter or a little garlic powder or so, you know salt. And they're like, hmm, it smells like popcorn. I'm like, okay, I don't think it tastes like popcorn. But if you want, you're more than welcome to try it. And they're like, no, no, I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. Mm-hmm. Eventually, eventually my older one has now taken a liking to green beans because wow. it's something that I serve and, and I don't serve it often. Maybe once a week, or once every two weeks, I personally love it. Every household is different. You have to kind of take what you use in your house and then think a little further, expand that. There's always foods to try. And even as parents, when we do a food shopping list, add one thing that is even novel to you. Mm-hmm. Find a recipe, try it. And I think that you open up a little bit of their viewpoint for that. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, it's funny. I have, I mean, not really funny, but <laughs> Liv, is, <laughs> Liv is not the greatest, most adventurous eater for sure. And I, you know, if I always tell this to parents, like, I think one of my definitely parent failure subjects is, is feeding and eating. And if I could go back in time, I would redo all of this with everything I know, right? With her. And I will with this you're, baby. You're getting your do-over. Yes, I am you're getting, getting my do-over. do-over. But she, <laughs> she, uh, I'll, you know, I'll, and we haven't been with, so consistent about putting new things on her plate. That's for sure. Like definitely through her life. But when we do try it now, like she just, she'll just be like, I'm not, I'm not eating this. I don't want this. And I'm like, okay, it's, it's still going to stay on your plate. It does. Right. And she doesn't ask me one question about it. And sometimes even if I'm like, oh, you know, I'll, I'll sort of model. I realize that I, I want to do this too trying something and actually not liking it because I think her experience of me is like, I say everything is so delicious. Right. And (laughs) so sometimes I'll, you know, I'll show her when I try something and I'm like, oh gosh, that really is not for me. Like I really didn't like that. And I show her that I don't have to keep eating it. Or if it's really, really gross to me, I can just spit it out. Like I want to show her that she can tolerate or survive moments where she doesn't necessarily like things too. So I started actually showing her the things I don't like as well, right? I think that's just part of modeling too, the like the real experience behind eating and food. So it's funny you say that. There's really, there's only one thing I don't like. It's oysters. I can't with the texture. It's like really... I can't, I can't with the texture. I've tried, I tried them baked. I tried them like this. Like it's my mission in life. I think to be like, I'm going to cure myself and (laughs) love oysters. But, but listen, I think there are many. um, And one of the, one of the points that I talk about when we do these therapy sessions is there are 32 steps to eating. It is not just, yeah, it is not just, and I can, you know, I'm going to touch upon a few of them so you can see kind of like the hierarchy, but tolerating food in the room. 
letting the food be on your plate, mm-hmm. touching the food with a utensil, touching the food with your hands, bringing the food to your body, to your, to your hands, to your, to your mouth, taking a bite, spitting it out, taking a bite, chewing, and then spitting it out, taking a bite and actually mm-hmm. swallowing it. I mean, mm-hmm. there are 32 steps. Yeah. And, you know, I gave you just, just a few, even just like a taste, a lick. Yeah. That's yeah. also a step. Yeah. And, and it's true showing them that sometimes I, for, by the way, I totally changed your language. you you told me just now you, when you introduced your daughter, you said she's not an adventurous eater. And I'm sure before you've used the words picky. And yeah, now I, I love try not to use you, it. <laughs> it. I like hearing adventurous and, and not only, and it's not just that it's, we want to empower them, mm-hmm. you know, trying new foods. You're being brave. Mm-hmm. It's not when it's not easy for you. It really is. It's a big step. It's a big deal. And, and we can, we can celebrate for that for them too. Right. Just like any other thing they're going to try that's new that they're brave about this. For some kids, it comes so natural. It doesn't feel like they need to be brave about it. But for some kids, it really does. They're like, especially she's like slower to warm up in general. So it makes sense that she would also be slower to warm up to like new, new foods. Right. So I wanted to go back to something. Uh, we were, we're talking about like sort of parent role, like how we kind of can either make or break certain things. So we we talked about it in terms of when the emerging toddler that has emerging autonomy and we have preschoolers and they're like kind of dictating what they want, don't want. And then we can play a role in either like feeding into that or establishing this this sort of rule of like, okay, well, this is what's offered and you can decide to eat or not. How else do you think that parents sometimes can interfere in the eating process? Like, I know you and I were talking a little bit about like what happens when kids get really messy? Like what do parents tend to do? So many times when you're eating, right? We want to be on top of them. Mm -hmm. We are sitting there. We are playing airplane. We are engaging. We think that we need to have them like turned on. Mm -hmm. And the truth is, is you should treat eating like a dinner party. You are conversing, you are exploring, you are laughing. You can, I mean, I'm not saying don't sing songs or, you know, I have these um, special books, they're called Indestructibles. And so they can get wet, um, they don't rip, like nothing happens to them. And so I use them a lot at the, at the, at meal times if they need some sort of outside uh, engagement. And what ends up happening is when you treat it like a dinner party, there isn't this pressure of like, I need to make sure they eat the four ounces of it's yeah. quality over quantity. Yeah. And we really look, and we should never look at eating like day by day or meal by meal. We need to look at it like on a week, on a weekly basis, because right. a lot of times our kids eat, they eat some, a lot, a lot one day, a little another day. But the most important thing is when they're eating is getting messy. Do not touch them. Do not wipe their face with a spoon. Do not wipe their face with a washcloth. In <laughs> fact, I recommend to when you're finished me- with mealtime, first, you should create a routine around mealtime. So like washing your hands, even when they're even when they're six months old. I mean, take them to the sink and wash their hands, sit down at the table. And when you are finished, you want to take them from the chair and clean them at the sink. Mm. So you are no longer creating this association with high chair and this noxious stimuli of like, you know, wet face, you know, no, no, no kid likes to be wiped. Um, You also, you also can provide them with a napkin. So six months old is a little, their motor skills are not that adept, but 
by the time they turn one, they can for sure take a napkin and wipe their face. Not well, but but doing it. Why do we have this like need to like not see a spot on their face while we're feeding them? <laughs> it's true. Like as you know what I think it's going to I don't know either but it's going to be like ex- this is exposure for the parent too. It really is, right? It's like allow your kid to just fully emerge into this experience, right? Show them that there's not so many restraints around this around eating, right? Because it's like, oh no, you spilled or no, you got messy. Um, I love that. So don't wipe, try not to wipe them or clean them until they're done. And for those of you that can't handle it, they have those like bibs now that are like long sleeve and like go to the bottom and like, you know. There's there's amazing things out there now. They have like a high chair catchy. So it catches mm-hmm. all the food that comes off the high chair. But I think the real deal here is when you're in that meal, like when you're trying, you know, when you see them, if you transform what you think the meal should look like, so it's not going to be this pretty perfect thing. Now, mm-hmm. I'm a realist. We also sometimes are on the go or we're in a restaurant. Like, right. don't make your life easy. I'm not saying you have to have a therapy designed meal every single meal, but for the most part, especially when they're learning, is allowing them to explore. And exploration leads to more adventure. Yeah. And I love the the analogy you gave of the dinner party. I think that really brings home this like vibe that we're supposed to have where it's like so such low pressure, like such casual, like this is a, a time for exploring, eating, socializing, but it's not this like pressured thing where you have to finish this or you have to eat it a certain way. Well, if you feel pressure, right? Mm-hmm. Imagine what they feel. You are right. just trickling down that pressure. Right. Um, there is a big pressure for us to get our children fed. We worry about brain development. We worry about um, weight gain. We worry about a lot of things. And you know, as parents, there are very few things, even though there are they 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 involve and entail a lot of things. But we really have to keep them clothed, right? Um, sheltered and fed. Mm-hmm. And it's one of the main things. It's it's a basic. It can make a parent feel like a true failure. Let's move on, Mel, to a couple more tips that you and I had talked about before, which I thought were really cool. Can you tell everybody what a no bowl is? So it's so controversial. Okay. It's actually like people, there are <laughs> feeding therapists out there that they're like, don't call it a no bowl because it has the word no in it. And I just, I think it's just easy to call it a noble. You can call it whatever you like. Um, I usually have an extra plate. So, and I try to make it small because the idea is not to have two dinner plates at the table. Mm-hmm. Try to make it small and decrease that pressure for the child to even have it on their plate. So either I'll put it on their plate and if they don't want it, if like they're like, the food, I don't want this mean? on my plate, the, any food, any new foods, even familiar foods, whatever they, whatever, maybe that day they're not into it. They're like, I don't want the, that particular food on my plate. I just say, go ahead, put it on the, on the other plate. It's no problem. That plate's also yours. Mm. Um, also this really encourages no throwing Mm. many times. This is for our, for our little, little ones for, you know, six to 18 months, you know, when they have it on their plate, they literally pick it up and fling it across the room. And they're like, you know, instead of being like, mommy, I really don't want to eat this. They're like, you know, all the way across the room. And what you what you want to be able to do is remove the pressure, remove the stress. If it's really that stressful for them that every time you put it on, they have to make a comment about it, clearly it's very stressful. So bottom line is you want to make sure you're giving your child an out. Mm-hmm. You want to make sure you are giving them the ability to feel comfortable 
during mealtime. And so this no bowl or extra bowl, some, some feeding therapists will even recommend like a placemat Mm-hmm. So that they can just put it on the placemat instead of having an extra bowl at the table, or you can put it on a napkin, whatever it is. The point is take away, take away the stress of having yeah. it in front of So that of them. doesn't make it feel as overwhelming for some kids. Like they just really don't want it on their plate. Correct. Right? And, the, and then there were some other things you talked about, like with playing, talk, talk to us how we can play <laughs> with more of a purpose. So- Right. So play with purpose. There's always a reason behind what we're doing. And so, for example, you can, some great fun things you can do, even making a recipe, make baking muffins at home. It is a playing. You guys are interacting, you know, you pour, you pour. Okay. How many chocolate chips are you going to put? How many? And you are creating this connection. You're creating this language. And then you're using this to create that connection between the food and the feeling. And when you can do that, you improve their relationship with food, you improve their relationship with you, and you're allowed to continue to play even though you don't have any toys in front of you. So for example, you can create faces with the different foods. You can, you know, the other day during a therapy session, we we reenacted their vacation. So they were, we made a whole pool with like flowers around, and this was all food-based um, with like celery was our- oh out of food. So celery were, were like the celery chunks were our chairs at the beach. Mm. Um, you know, when we, we made, we took graham crackers and we crumpled them up and made sand. Mm-hmm. So you can, you can get really, really creative. And I think also one of the things that we kind of self-sabotage, we, we do self-sabotage as parents is not creating differences. So a lot of times we're like, we offer the same kind of pasta or we offer the sandwich the same way. And even something as Mm -hmm. simple as cutting the sandwich into strips instead of into triangles creates a little bit of flexibility within your child. You know, grapes, you can cut the grapes long ways. You can cut them horizontal, even just, you know, serving them in long sticks, uh, in short cubes. And it just creates a little bit of flexibility for them. So I would say, you know, in regards to some tips and tricks, just to like recap, you know, having this noble, right. Having this, this place to kind of remove whatever you have, maybe even some tasting spoons, make it fun, have a taste test, you know, Oh, my kids are very picky with their cream cheese. So like the other day I was like, okay, we're going to do a blind taste test. We're going to see who can tell which cream cheese is tempty. You know, we were, there was like a tempty shortage. Okay. So it was a big, it was a big deal in our house and really just, you know, your reactions during the mealtime, they matter. If your child is like, eat something and they're like, and you're like, what happened? No, instead be like, be like, Hey, it looks like you really didn't like that. Like what happened over there? Right. And our reactions really help, especially with the little ones with the gagging, you know, gagging is, is part of normal development. It's supposed to go away quickly, but Sometimes it, you know, some kids are a little bit different. And what happens is you start to panic. Mm-hmm. If you panic, I guarantee you, your child will panic. And that'll be the last time they try that, whatever right. thing you gave them. Right. That's so true. Right. It's kind of like when they fall, they, they, they are learning to walk and then they fall and they look at you. And the, we have the parents that are like, oh my God. And then that child is now done walking for the day. <laughs> and then, you know, then you have the parents that are like, oh, oops, you know, and then you encourage them to keep going. So yeah, for sure. They're always looking back at our responses and learning from those too. This is so helpful, Mel. I think that we covered lots of things and I really was an honor to have you here. I would love for people to know more of where they can find you if they wanted to learn more do one of your workshops or work with you. 
So I do offer private one-to-one consulting. I'm going to give you all my contact info and you can go ahead. I'll add it in the show notes then. All right, guys. Thanks, Mel, so much for being here with us and teaching us all of this today. Thanks for your wisdom. Thanks for hanging out with me today. To keep up with the latest episodes, make sure to subscribe to the podcast. And to keep up with the latest content and workshop offerings, be sure to sign up for my newsletter. You can do this on my website, www.hatchandbloom.co. You can also catch me on Instagram at hatchandbloomco. See you soon.